Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 566. It is Wednesday, December the 8th, 2010. If you ain't done your Christmas shopping yet, you may be very well wrong. You're going to run out of time to do it online anyway. You're going to have to go to those places called the mall, and you better take your survival kit with you when you go to that crazy place, in spite of our failing economy, uh, the mall is going crazy, at least up in my neck of the woods. I drove by that sucker on the highway the other day and thought, thank God I'm not in there. Well, what does that have to do with today? Well, this is the survival podcast. We're about the mall. We're going to talk about the antithesis of the mall today, living off-grid. Everything the mall is, off-grid isn't. And we're going to have a really great guy come on the show today, an author, a speaker, a teacher, a lecturer, uh, and a media producer named Cam Mather, who lives up in Canada and lives off-grid on about a 150-acre uh, uh, farm called Sunflower Farms. And uh, he does everything either with solar, wind, or a little bit of propane, and has been doing that for 14 years, and he's learned a lot of things by doing that. He's going to be here today to share, us, share with us those things and give you some great resources and things that you can do. We have a great conversation lined up. Before that, though, I do want to go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of those sponsors because they do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure this show is here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one, the Berkey guy. Hey, man, fresh, clean water is what you need. If you don't have fresh, clean water, you've got a real problem. It's called death. And with the Berkey guy and Berkey Systems at Directive21.com, you can get all the fresh, clean water you can possibly make. And it's a great system to sit in your home. It looks really cool. I've got a Berkey Imperial. I need to do a review on it. I keep promising Jeff, the Berkey guy, that I'm going to do that. I haven't gotten to it yet. We'll see about it this week with all these interviews lined up. It's been tough. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It uh, makes me feel good to know that the water comes out of my tap actually has things removed from it now like chlorine and fluoride because I don't want either one of those things in my body any more than they have to be. Uh, but also remember, the Berkey guy is running a contest. It runs through the 15th. That means you got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine days left to enter the contest. And it's easy. You put your name and your email in a form and you click submit. There will be a link in today's show notes. If you do not try to win the, the system, I'm not sure why. Um, it's a great system worth a few hundred bucks. In fact, you can win one of two different systems and you can win some seeds and you can win some other things. So make sure you play the contest. Next sponsor of the day is ShelfReliance.com. I think Shelf Reliance builds the most innovative food storage systems available anywhere today that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat. They also have an exceptional selection of long-term storable foods. And I think if you compare the pricing on Shelf Reliance brand long-term storables against some other popular brands, you'll find that there's, with certain things there's a big pricing advantage. So check out Shelf Reliance, not just for their food storage, uh, but for their long-term storage food items and their other cool innovative products as well. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys, check out the gear shop. AOCS Copper Rounds are available for pre-order. They're going to ship sometime around the beginning of January. Uh, the response has been amazing to them so far. I want to say a little bit about them today, real quick, beyond it's a one-ounce copper coin with some markings on it. 
This is much more than a piece of copper. If you want to store a thousand pounds of copper, this is not the way to do it. If you want to invest in a ton of copper, this is not the way to do it. This is not about copper is a precious metal so much as it is about it is a form of barter currency. Tomorrow, Rob Gray will be here to talk about using barter currencies. But it's more than that. It's an evangelical tool. From anywhere between a dollar to a dollar twenty-five a coin, what you have is a, a, a piece of equipment you can use and go out and give away. Leave it as a tip. Don't leave it as the only tip, cheapskates. You know, if you've got a, a waiter. With the back is going to say to go to a website to learn the truth about money. That website is trtam.com. Um, basically, it's a blog right now, but what's going to be available for download there in about another two weeks is a 50-page book that explains everything I've already told you on air about money in a great little book that you'll be able to give away for free, or anybody that goes to that site will be able to get it, will give away for free. So this is about a, not just having a barter currency, not just having a survival podcast affinity item, but having a tool to educate people about things like what the Federal Reserve is, why when politicians talk about paying off the national debt, it can't happen. It's impossible. Did you know that? We can't pay off the debt in the current system. There would be no money if we paid off the debt. The money equals debt. Things like that. So consider getting some of those while they're in pre-order. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that exclusive content available only to members. Discounts, everything uh, that I've said about it before. So I'll leave it go short today because I want to get Cam on. All right, folks. And with that, we've wrapped up the housekeeping. And it is now my pleasure to bring back a guest. Been on the show one time before. Always has a lot of great information with us, a lot of great things to share, and some really uh, unique viewpoints into living sustainably, living off-grid, all of that good stuff, because he's been doing it for a long time now, uh, and we're blessed to have Cam Mather with us today. Cam, thanks for being with us on the show. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me back. Cam, uh, you were on once before, but before we get into like your new book and some other things I want to ask you about, I do want to make sure maybe listeners that haven't gone back 150 episodes and listened to that one uh, know a little bit about who, who you are. So can you tell us, who is Cam Mather, and how would you end up on this, uh, this, this farm in Ontario with 150 acres living off grid. Who were you before that? How'd you get there? Why'd you do it? Uh, we were living in a, uh, in a suburban neighborhood and uh, wanted to get uh, out of the rat race, so we moved our house and our business uh, out, out into the bush. Uh, nearest neighbor is four kilometers or uh, four miles away, and, uh, and that's where the nearest electricity pole is. And, you know, did it because we wanted to be more independent and wanted to, to power our home and our business with solar power and wind power. So that was sort of the, the key impetus. But uh, over the years, as we've done more and more reading and come to understand peak oil and, and some of the challenges with the economic collapse and climate change, we sort of decided it was, uh, it was time to sort of ramp it up and start making ourselves more independent. So we, we were fortunate that we had met a, a friend uh, who doesn't live too far from us, William Kemp, and he also lived off-grid. Bill's been off-grid for almost 20 years. I've been off-grid 14 now. And uh, Bill Bill's an engineer who really understood uh, renewable energy well, so we convinced him to write a book about it called The Renewable Energy Handbook. And there were books about solar power and wind power, but there was nothing that pulled it all together that had... Uh, Solar, wind, batteries, inverters, uh, you know, energy efficiency, sort of the whole nine yards with how to live off-grid. So our, our friendship with Bill has been, been great, and the book has been very successful in North America because he's one of these engineers who writes in a way you can understand. And that certainly helped me uh, in, in my quest to make my home more independent because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware that the, the, the trick or the, you know, the story with a lot of 
people who move off grid is that they kind of cheat because they move they move off grid but they move on on to propane and they shift all their major loads which are their thermal loads or their heat loads uh, onto propane which is which is pretty easy to do but you know you still need a truck to come down your driveway and deliver that propane and propane really is the is the most expensive way to, to heat your home and heat your hot water and heat your uh, your food and cook your food so uh, what we have been doing over the last few years is been also trying to get ourselves off propane, and that's a, that's that's a tough thing if you want to live a fairly North American lifestyle. And we've we you know we as we've been up we've been upgrading the number of solar panels we have for electricity, and that helps us do more of our cooking with electricity. Uh, we have a solar hot water heater, which is a, a system from a company called Dannerworks, and that preheats our water or heats most of our domestic hot water. And, uh, and that reduces how much propane we need to buy for the hot water tank. So we've sort of gone through and looked at all the ways we consume energy and have, have been shifting them to ways that we can produce it ourselves. And, and, it, and it's quite challenging. And when you live in a northern climate like ours, where we are, you know, heating is one of our big challenges. But we're fortunate that we have a, a great wood stove that, that heats our home. And with 150 acres, you know, I've, I've, I've never really had to cut a live tree just because I can't keep up with the dead ones that are falling. So we're at a stage now where we have a propane cook stove that we use during, at this time of the year when there's not enough sun and wind to use electricity. And we're looking at some point at, at converting that to, to wood as well. So we, uh, we would be using wood to, to, to cook and we would also put a loop through there and that would help us with some of, with more of our hot water because at this time of the year when you don't have as much uh, solar radiation, you're still using, I'm still using propane to heat my hot water. Sure. So, sure. That's where I, we're at. I want to hold you there for a second because I want to make sure that, uh, that renewable energy handbook, I want people to know, um, you sent me a copy of that book and it's probably one of the, the greatest gifts I've ever been given. If you want to know how to do all this stuff and how to piece it together and how, I guess the big thing for me was how much money I could save by sourcing the materials and doing most of the work myself and maybe having certain things that could, you know, get you electrocuted if you're doing grid grid tight or whatever, um, done by an electrician, but only having them do that final link. Um, that book is worth about a hundred times its cover price. So I really recommend people look into that. Also, before we go for, further, Cam, could you kind of talk about, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the, the lifestyle change. Who who were you, like, what was your profession? You know, how did you earn your daily bread before you made this change? Yeah, well, we had, um, my wife and I ran an electronic publishing business in, in, the, in the suburban city near Toronto where we lived. Uh, we did a lot of corporate reports and catalogs and newsletters and things like that. And, you know, the good thing about all this technology was that it allowed us to move, you know, almost four hours away from our customers and continue to do work for them. And we started publishing a magazine on renewable energy, and that's when we met Bill, and that sort of snowballed into the book. So, you know, uh, we were very much fairly typically suburban people when, when, when you know, when our kids were born, and uh, we still took them to Disney World and, and did all those sorts of things. But, you know, as, as time went on and, and we started learning more, we decided that the further away from the maddening crowd we could be, the better. And uh, as we've learned more about peak oil, we have invested more and more of the money that most people would be putting into a 401k or a retirement fund. We've been investing into hard assets, and that's what I really talk about in thriving during challenging times, things like solar panels, things that will actually do something for you. And so many times I have a, a wind turbine where I am, and I'm not in the best location because I'm, I'm in a fairly wooded area. 
but it's on a hundred foot tower and it's it's clearing the tree line by about thirty or forty feet. And when I when I when I talk to people about the wind turbine, I say, you know, the the, the turbine was three thousand uh, dollars, the tower was three thousand uh, bucks. I put sixteen hundred bucks worth of concrete in the anchors, uh, seven hundred dollars worth of cabling to get it wired in. By the time I was done, I was eight or nine thousand dollars on this wind turbine. And which, which, from one perspective, is stupid because it would be much, much cheaper for me to just buy gasoline and use gasoline or diesel fuel and run a generator for the times that I don't have enough sun. And and the the fall is one of those typical times in in my climate. It's a lot of cloudy days, uh, but the nice thing is, is those those cloudy days in the fall tend to have a lot of wind. So so yeah, it would have been better to to continue to buy gas. But quite honestly. I see a day, number one, when gas is going to be outrageously expensive, and number two, when I might not be able to get it. And I'm at a stage where my lifestyle is such that, you know, all the things that were going in the garden, some of it ends up in a freezer, and I need electricity to keep that freezer going to keep all that hard-earned food that I've grown cool, you know, cold so I can eat it all winter. So we, we, we sort of had made some of those choices. You know, a lot of people would say, geez, nine or 10000 bucks, I'd buy a nice granite countertop. And sure it would, and our kitchen would look much nicer with the granite countertop. But I can tell you, on a on a on a windy night in November, when I haven't seen the sun for a week, but when my wind turbine is screaming away up there, charging my batteries when I'm sleeping, it's just the it's the best sound in the world. And there's nothing nicer than to, to get up and, and know that your batteries are going to be charged, and the freezer is going to be working, and the pump's going to be pumping water, and the computers are going to be working. And the refrigerator's working, and the TV's working, and the lights are working. Everything's working, uh, and I haven't had to rely on a single other person for that. I do it all myself. It's, it's an incredibly, it's a, it's a really freeing experience. It's very, very empowering, and I, I absolutely love it. You know, we've been doing this 14 years now, and there's, there's, I still stand out there and look at these solar panels and marvel at this wind turbine and say, wow, I, I can't believe I can do this, but uh, it's pretty cool. Not to mention with the wind turbine, there, there's in that system you just described. There is a few things that are parts of it that can break down over time and need to be replaced. The the the, uh, the generator itself may at some point need replacement. That might be 15 years. It might be 30 years. I guess it depends on the quality of the item that went in. Maybe the vanes eventually. Maybe the turbine itself needs to be replaced. But I mean the the tower, the concrete, the wiring that that has an infrastructure life greater than a human being. So it's a lifetime investment on the majority of the the, the infrastructure, and you know any engineer is going to tell you the infrastructure is the expensive part uh, of most things. So that's there forever, and like you said, instead of putting money in your four hundred one k, hoping to God it doesn't crash to the ground, hoping to God that inflation works and pushes the value up, and that when you're sixty five, you can use it to buy electricity to heat your little condo, uh, you know, or wherever you're at at that point because you've lived that lifestyle. Your wind turbine's just sitting there, whoop, 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 and it's just putting out power day after day after day after day. So it, it might be cheaper short term is what I'm saying, but across your lifetime, and I mean, you're building something you can leave to your kids one day, right? No, no question about it, and that's one of the things I really push with solar panels is the fact that you know, they're, they're, you're leaving your kids a legacy. The, the, a solar panel you buy today is going to come with a 25- or 30-year warranty. So any manufacturer that will give you a 30-year warranty on a product knows that it's going to last a lot longer than that. Now the the wind turbine I bought is is, is a Bergie. It's a, it's a, the company's from Oklahoma. It's I think one of the, the better engineered wind turbines out there. But you're right, it, it does have moving parts and it's more likely to break. 
And I'm quite honestly at a stage where, you know, the next time I have $3,000 around uh, and, and, my, and the warranty has run out on that Bergie, you know, maybe it's time I look at buying another one and, and putting it away, putting it in a box, and, uh, and if this one breaks, bring it down and, and use it for spare parts, Hope, hoping that I can have, the, you know, a comparable model number. You know, but, uh, your, 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 your thing on the, the solar panels, what I've learned is there's tons of people out there that with 20-year-old panels yanking them off the roof, not because they don't work, because they can buy more efficient panels now, and you can buy those things used, and you stick them up on your roof, and they put power out almost as good as the day they were made. Yep. And the and the beauty, and I hate to say it, the, the I hate to say the the good thing about the economic collapse was that you know, and in 2008, up until that time, you had Germany and Japan and California and all these places with great incentives, so you had a huge ramp up in production. Then you had the economic collapse, and suddenly there was a huge supply of solar panels in the market that weren't going sold, so the prices dropped significantly. So to me, now's the time to be to be buying these things. If you still got a job and you still got the money to do it, you know, you shouldn't be buying that granite countertop. You should be buying solar panels. I think that that's where you should be investing your money. I agree with you because granite countertop, yeah, granted, it looks great, but it can't feed you, and it don't keep you warm. If you lay on one, it'll pull the heat rate out of your body, um, which maybe it's useful down here at least because my, my, you know, your big expense is heating. My, my big expense is cooling when it's 118,000 degrees outside, uh, but you're right. I mean, we're, we're looking at the improvements we're going to do at our place in Arkansas when we move, and we look at it, we go, our countertops are, are, are just cruddy, and we do want to fix them up, but we'll use you know, low-cost tile and do the work ourselves, and we'll put the money into things like alternative energy because the countertop's where we cut our, our, our sandwich up, but our electricity is how we cook the meat that goes between the bread. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, I, I was uh, I was fortunate when I put up my turbine, I, I used a, 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 a tower called a gin pole, and I can I can bring the, the wind turbine down in about 20 minutes. It, uh, I have a DeWalt cordless drill, an 18-volt cordless drill. I can bring the turbine down with two batteries, uh, and uh, I can put it up with four batteries. It's a, there's a little more, you know, a little more energy required when you're putting it up, but it's a very efficient winch. The nice thing about that is, is if it was to break, it's easy to bring down. Uh, and if you're in a hurricane-prone zone, although any wind turbine you purchase today is going to have the ability to furl or or stall, so that it, it should be able to, uh, you know, withstand very high winds. I know that I can bring mine down on in pretty short order, so that it, uh, uh, that I'll be able to preserve that asset to, if a, if a big storm's blowing through. Awesome. And by the way, folks, you just heard one of the best investments I can recommend there. If you're going to buy electric tools by DeWalt and an 18-volt cordless drill, I've had one for 15 years uh, that was given to me by a cable guy who dropped it off of a, of a pole and put a chunk out of it and decided since his company would replace it, he could just give it away. And I don't know how long he used it, and I've burned through some batteries in it, but I still use that thing all the time. So if you're going to buy, buy a tool, buy the best um, when you're when you're looking to do the, the things that you're talking about, you're moving to solar and wind, but you're some guy living in the middle of Arlington, Texas, like me, and you don't have the money to do this full scale right away. Maybe it's not in the cars. You're going to move off grid. What are some steps people can take to kind of get started with solar and wind at a smaller level, and then build it in a way that it can be expanded? Well, step number one is always energy efficiency. You know, the, the cheapest energy is energy you save. So you should be spending your money on on you know uh, energy efficient light bulbs and energy efficient appliances get the Interstar logo use the inner guide to, to to make sure you get the, the the appliances that consume the least amount of energy because what does 
And it doesn't matter what the, the product costs, it's the life cycle cost, what it costs to operate over its life. And as the cost of energy goes up, which it will, you know, the, the, the less energy a product uses, the better. So it's, it's the least sexy part of renewable energy, but it's the thing you gotta do first. And then after you've done energy efficiency, uh, down where you are, the quickest return on investment is gonna be solar thermal. So it's using the sun for heat rather than for electricity. So that's putting a, a, a panel on your roof for hot water, or putting in a wood stove if, if you're in a cooler environment, or putting in a geothermal system. And you know, if you, you put up a solar domestic hot water system, probably cost you about five thousand bucks. A lot of utilities will will give you incentives. There's a federal incentive from the U.S. government, and there some states have them, and some municipalities do, because they know where we're at with natural gas. They know we're we're, we're running out of it, and it's going to be more expensive, and they want you to use less of it. So, you know, putting up a solar domestic hot water heater is going to probably give you, depending on where you live, we'll say 60% of your hot water for free, $5,000 investment, probably going to be paid off within five years. So it's a 20% return on investment. So, you know, right now, if you're looking, if you've got some money either to, to put aside and you're putting it in a, you know, in a bond or, or, or a savings account, what are you earning? One and a half, two percent 2%, you're getting 20% when you start investing in some of this solar equipment. And in terms of in terms of getting into solar electric and using the sun for electricity, uh, the, one of the key systems that that, that any that any of the uh, the key parts of the system is going to be the inverter. It's the box that converts the DC electricity that the solar panel makes to AC that your household is going to want. So I would suggest you you invest in a, in a good one of those. Spend a couple thousand bucks on a good inverter, and only get a you know get one panel and one small battery to start. You can always upgrade the solar panels. You can always upgrade the batteries. Get a good inverter that, that that will allow you to expand. And you know, next year when you get a thousand bucks back in your income tax, buy some solar panels. You know, two years from now when Uncle Harry dies and leaves you five thousand bucks, buy more solar panels. You can keep upgrading the system, providing that you invested in a good inverter to start. And if and if that's still out of your price range, you should be looking at even one of these battery boxes that you can buy. A lot of uh, you know home uh, hardware stores and and, uh, and lumber yards will sell them. They'll they'll be a a battery with an inverter built in, and they'll tend to have a you know picture on the side that'll say if the power goes out, this will keep a cell phone on for you know for 40 hours or a fridge running for three hours or whatever. Uh, and get get yourself one of those because the nice thing will be if uh, if if you're not prepared, if you don't have enough things charged up, it'll be nice to to still be able to use your cell phone. And uh, and the other thing in terms of you know, that I always talk about with people in terms of cell phone is if you have a cell phone, learn how to text message. Because what happens in a lot of emergencies like earthquakes and things is is that uh, the, the voice network will go down, but you'll still be able to send text messages. So it uses less of energy, and it's in a lower bandwidth, I think. So a lot of times people aren't able to call each other on cell phones, but they're able to text. And this sounds a little crazy, but that you know I was telling people to use to do this for years. <laughs> and I can never figure out how to do it on my own cell phone. But, uh, uh, but you know, if you can learn to text, you're going to have that ability to communicate with people that you're trying to get in touch with. And if you've got a little uh, battery box with a little inverter built in, you'll be able to charge that cell phone. So it will give you contact with the outside world in the event there was a, a situation that, uh, that, that none of us hope happened, but that can happen. Well, first of all, one thing you can keep in your emergency kit, if you need to make sure you can text as a 14-year-old girl, uh, and she'll take care of that for your texting needs. <laughs> but uh, on, on the backup battery system, there's a product called the Power Dome EX. We have four of them. Uh, we have one in every vehicle, and we bring one in a week and run, make sure it's fully charged and keep you know rotate them through that way. And uh, it's a hundred bucks. And if you don't have one of those in your vehicle, 
I think you're wrong. I mean, it, it, it saved us so many times. I've been able to find people stuck in a parking lot, jump their vehicle for them. And, yeah, I could do that with jumper cables, but if they had one of these, they don't even need another car. Um, I did a test, and it ran a laptop computer with the battery pulled, so it's full draw, running a DVD and a fan for about an hour and a half. And that's quite a bit of draw there. So those products will do that. But the other thing I've been telling people, and you tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, if you go out and get yourself two good marine-grade you know, deep-cycle batteries and put them in one of those rubber-made rollable toolboxes, wire them together, keep them at 12 volts, uh, put a good inverter on the other side of that, and this is not maybe one of your household-level inverters, but, you know, like a 750-watt inverter, that type of thing, on the outside of the box, wire that through, get yourself a charge controller and a 60-watt solar panel off of eBay. Um, that is, in essence, a mini house. And if you know how to do that and you get the experience from that, Putting it in a house is just doing more and bigger. No, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I agree, and, and it's good that you pointed out you should get a charge controller. It, it's easy to, to, to overcharge those, so you know, spend uh, 20 or 30 bucks on a, on a good little charge controller just to keep from, from frying your batteries, and that, that, that's a brilliant way to do it. And, and it's all scalable. And, and like you said, by doing that, you're, you're getting the experience you need to, as, you, as you ramp up and add more panels or a new battery, battery bank, et cetera, later on. So that's a great way to do it. I've even got some free solar panels, Cam, and the way I've been able to do that is if you look, a lot of times you'll see these street signs, and they're not big panels. They might be a 20-watt panel or whatever, but they're free. You'll see these street signs that have panels on them, and usually they're leased. And uh, I picked this up on some ebook I got online, and if you look at the back, you'll find the name of the company leasing that to the city or the county or the highway construction company. And a lot of times if you call that company up and ask them if they have any damaged ones, they'll say, yeah, we got a few, and they'll give them to you. And they might not quite put out full output, but for building small backup systems, you can piece that together for nothing. And uh, I thought that was one of the coolest things that I'd ever come by. Um, so your rules are basically start with efficiency, uh, then move to thermal. Think about things like hot water heating. You tell people um, how much of your – because people talk about changing light bulbs. And I was shocked at how little lighting costs, really, compared to something like heating my hot water. What's the difference there? Well, um, you know, you're probably looking at, uh, in, in a northern climate, uh, and that's, uh, you know, just the latest data, data I've seen, probably 60% of your energy is going to be for heating your home, uh, and then you're going to get, uh, you know, 20% for cooling, and then you start going down for that, you know, hot water, uh, appliances, et cetera. So, 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 so officially, technically, um, yeah, lighting, lighting and, uh, and energy-efficient appliances are not going to be a large percentage of your overall household energy requirements. And, and that's the cool thing about what you've su suggested with your system, uh, that uh, by, by having a, a, minim a minimal investment in something like that, you can, you can keep the lights on quite, uh, quite comfortably. And you don't have to go out and buy the LED lights, which are really expensive. You should just be buying the, the compact fluorescents. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. There's one thing I suggest to a lot of people as well is, is if, if they're if they're looking at uh, at doing this seriously, they, they they and if they're not an electrician, they might want to get an electrician in and 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 separate out their panel boxes so you have two panel boxes. One is one is essential loads and one is non-essential loads. So if you've got that little battery bank backup, it would be powering your essential loads, which would be uh, lighting radio or television to have an idea of what's happening. If your battery bank is big enough and you're living in a rural environment, it would power your pump. Uh, that's going to be quite a big draw, but uh, you may want to get a generator tied into that. And then you'd have your, your non-essential loads, which would be your dishwasher and your clothes washer. You know, if the power's out for a week, you don't need to wash your clothes. You know, you're going to get a little smelly. 
but uh, but that's a big demand that that you don't require. And the beauty of having uh, have, having your house wired that way is is that in the event of, a, of an extended power outage, that uh, you're going to keep lights on and freezers working and things like that. And you know you you have them in in, uh, in hurricanes and, and and tornadoes and things when they blow through, and sometimes they can be fairly extensive. But you know up here where I am. Uh, in, uh, in oh, uh, ten years ago, there was a, there was a large ice storm, and you had you know fifty million people in in, in the northern U.S. and in Ontario and Quebec without electricity. And you know when I do a lot of my workshops on solar and wind, it's amazing how many people I talk to, and, and I'll say how many people were without power for three days, and everybody's hand will go up, and how many people were without power for two weeks. You know, lots of hands go up, and 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 some of them are are, are seventeen days and and, and more. And then you ask people, well, what have you done? And, and most of them haven't done anything. You say, haven't bought a generator? No, no. There's this sort of human <laughs> inertia that says, well, it's not going to happen again. Well, it is going to happen again, and, and there's no excuse for you not to be prepared now. The, to the extent where during the ice storm, within three days, the, you know, the military had been called out, you know, people are in really dire straits. They can't, uh, they can't keep their house warm. The pipes are freezing. They can't eat. They can't bathe. Uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a major disaster. Well, when the military knocks on, on Bill Kemp's uh, door, my friend who wrote the Renewable Energy Handbook, Bill lives off-grid like I do, he heats with the wood stove, you know, he opens his door, uh, heat, uh, you know, comes, you know, piling out because of his wood stove, <laughs> Bill's standing there in his, his bathrobe because he just had a shower, he's got Beethoven playing on the background, and he's got a steaming hot cup of coffee, and the military guys sort of look at their clipboard and say, well, we have to ask, is everybody in the house okay? Yeah, yeah. What's what's the problem, sir? They'd probably yeah. like to come in, honestly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and you know, we we have this technology. It's just that most people choose to take their income and give it to somebody else to to get their natural gas for their hot water and somebody else for their electricity, and they pay somebody else for their food, and they take all these essential things that our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents did themselves, and we give those people our money. And I think it's time you start taking your money and, and putting it into solar panels and putting it into all the things that make you independent again. It's, it's really important, and you, and you, need, you almost need, you need a shock like an ice storm to, to wake you up. And, uh, and, a, and a lot of people don't respond to it, but I'm sure lots of people that listen to your, your podcast are doing that, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of as we – I want to switch gears in here and talk about feeding ourselves here in, in just a second, but I want to kind of put it in perspective for folks. Um, there's five things that they say you need to survive, you know, and one's food, uh, one's shelter, one's water, uh, one's fire, and one's security. Now, I've changed that. I call fire energy, uh, you know, because this is a wilderness survival uh, tenant, you know, but when it comes down to living in our homes, fire represents heat. It represents power. It represents energy. So we've been really focused on the energy. We've definitely been focused on the shelter because of, you know, all the energy efficiency things. We're talking about making sure that our shelters are, are sound, Let's move and talk about food and water for a bit. Um, let's talk about food and fact, because you have a, it's not brand new, but it's a pretty new book out called The All-You-Can-Eat Gardening Handbook, and uh, I've read that. I think that's a phenomenal book. I've been saying since almost day one of the show, people need to learn how to feed themselves again and get connected to the, the food supply and realize that food doesn't come in a box and a package. You've kind of even taken that to a, you, you have a really big, I wouldn't call it a garden, I'd say it's a mini farm. Tell us about what you're doing there, why you're doing it, that type of thing. Well, we I've been gardening for, for 35 years, and when I was living in the suburbs, I had some big black walnut trees in the backyard and couldn't grow anything in the backyard. And 
started out growing a few tomato plants in my front yard, and by the time the garden had expanded to the point where I had corn growing in my front yard, I decided it was time to move out to the country. So, I mean, I've always loved gardening, but I think there's a, there's a real urgency right now for people to, to start acquiring these skills. And it, I don't think gardening is, is overly complicated, but gardening takes time. You need, to, you need to, to do it a lot, and you need to make a lot of mistakes to know when to put things in and, and what to put in and, and, and all those other things. So, so the, I just talk to a lot of people, and I say, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how big your garden is. If you're in an apartment right now, get yourself some, some containers. If you're in a townhouse and you've got a small garden, it doesn't matter. Just get something in the ground. And, and I have, you know, sort of steadily expanded my garden over the years, and I'm at a stage now where, uh, you know, I sell some of my vegetables, so it's, it's somewhat of a, of a market garden, but I tend to focus on the things that store the best. And that's been my, uh, my my focus over the last few years, and and that's why you know when when you read my gardening book, you get to the potato section. You know the potato section is, is probably the the biggest section in it in terms of uh, in terms of what to grow. And you know the, the beauty of potatoes is number one, they're easy to grow. Uh, you can grow them anywhere, and they're a great source of protein that stores really well. And the and, and I the thing I like about potatoes is that every year I I, I put uh, fifteen or twenty buckets down in my uh, in my root cellar, and the ones that don't get eaten in the winter are the the seed the, the seed potatoes that I use for the following year. So it's one of those things where it's it's a it's a very inexpensive way to grow you know good food that will keep you going. And it's one of the things that uh, that the Russians. Uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons they were able to survive the collapse of the Soviet Union was because, you know, most Russians had a had a little plot in the country, and they had a couple of chickens, and they 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 could get some eggs, and they could grow potatoes that they could store through the winter. So, so it's it, it's concentrating things like that that are easy, uh, inexpensive protein that store well, and and that's sort of one of the the focuses of the book. You know, I, I did a, an interesting experiment this uh, summer. I, I grew a fairly large plot of wheat. Because, uh, I, you know, I like bread and I like pasta. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I eat a lot of this stuff. I should figure out about growing wheat. So I, I you know, I, I had about a 900-square-foot uh, patch of uh, patch of wheat that I grew. And then I harvested it. And, you know, of course, you have to you have to thresh it to get it off the, the stalks. And then you have to winnow it to get the husks off. And I was just blown away with how much energy is involved with getting protein from wheat. It's 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 staggering, and and now anytime I see a combine harvester, I'm just in awe of what this machine does, and and how much of our diet, you know, you you hear this statistic that you know for every calorie of, of food energy you eat, ten calories of fossil fuel energy have gone into it. But after going my own wheat, I understand because because a, a seven ton combine harvester is a factory on wheels out in a farmer's field, and to do that all manually is is quite staggering. So. You know, it, 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 at some point in the future, you're going to want to have sort of a, a diverse way to feed yourself. Part of it is going to be getting protein from things like grain. Part of it is going to be getting uh, protein from things like potatoes. And in a, in a, in a good mixed uh, environment, there's, there's going to be some animal protein there as well from your from your chickens, etc. Et and, and the nice thing about having those chickens is is that they're going to scratch around in the garden and they're going to be eating grubs and, and slugs and some of those nasty animals and pests that you don't want in there and uh, and be providing you from you know providing you with eggs and, and meat if, if 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 that's something you want down the road and a, and a great way to get rid of your compost. I mean they they can be fairly inexpensive to feed that way. So. 
so that's sort of the the stage we're at right now. I, I'm uh, I continue to make the gardens bigger. Uh, I, I've been investing a lot in in, in fruit like uh, strawberries and in and uh, in, in raspberries. Uh, this year I got into high bush blueberries. You know, I mean, we still like muffins and, and banana bread with blueberries and stuff. So uh, put in some blueberry plants and. Blueberries like a very acidic soil, so uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is how to how to get the, the 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 most value in terms of ways to build up your soil for the cheapest way. So every time I'm in the local city Kingston that I go to periodically, I hit every Starbucks store and I grab their coffee grounds. Coffee grounds are very acidic; they make your soil very acidic, and that's what blueberry plants love. So you know, I come home from Kingston with 200 pounds of free fertilizer for my blueberries. And, uh, and if, if, the, the thing that I notice right now in the city that I go to is, is that the leaves are all off the trees. So, uh, you know, every second house has 10 wonderful bags of, uh, of leaves out front. Now, I, I don't need them right now because I get horse manure from a neighbor, but, uh, if I was living in the city, I'd be saying, holy, holy man, people are throwing out all this compost. And they don't know it. It's not compost yet, but it, it's there. So, I mean, if I'd have, I'd have a trailer on my Honda Civic and I would be, hauling that stuff into into my yard and I'd have the biggest compost pile you could imagine. I mean, I did this in the city when I lived there uh and and I probably would compost about 150 bags of uh, of leaves that everybody else they're, they're, is throwing away, right? I mean, that's you're taking what what people see as garbage and realizing it's inherent worth. I want before I let you go further, I want to talk about a couple of things you've mentioned there uh, to drive it home for people. One is you talked about you got to make mistakes and you got to screw up and you got to do it yourself. I, I can't over uh, state how accurate that is. Even if you have someone that you know near you that's growing things, it's going to be different on your property. I have a good friend named Brian. He lives about 10 miles away from me. He had trouble with peppers early in the year getting them grow. I got them so big the plants are breaking. I got bell peppers the size of small pumpkins. Uh, but I can't, couldn't get squash to grow for anything here because of vine borers. He's never seen a vine borer. We're 10 miles away. Com- completely different crops uh, are, are successful or failing uh, when our soil conditions are quite similar, there's just little nuances. And my vine borer problem is probably because there's a lot of squash growers around me where he doesn't have that many. And all types of things like that, man, you're not going to know those things until you do. And then the other thing with the leaves you were talking about there at the end, um, if you want to speed that process up, you run a lawnmower over there a couple times, and, and that really accelerates that. If you mix green, what I do is I grow um, clover in my backyard. And I have these big patches of it where it's taken over the grass. And people think that's, you know, that's not the prettiest suburban lawn. But it's it's effective and it's high nitrogen. And we'll mix a bag of shredded leaves with two bags of, or two bags of shredded leaves to one uh, bag full of that clover. And, oh, my God, that breaks down in, like, I'd say about five weeks. It's compost. Perfect. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly what you should be doing. The, uh, the the clover is very high in nitrogen, leaves are high in carbon, and the you know, ratio of, of 1 to 2 or 1 to 3 is, is just perfect. So, no, that's exactly what you should be doing. And, and the other thing you're, you were talking about in terms of, you know, uh, the squash vine borers and things like that is is that, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, man, I, I'm not going to be able to grow enough food for myself. I'm, I'm intimidated to even get started. And, and the problem with that attitude is, is that the smaller your garden, probably the more success you're going to have. You know, when you've got half an acre like I do, I just don't have the t- proper time to get around and be examining the plants the way I should. You know, this year I had a real problem with slugs because we've had two uh, wet summers in a row. And before I was having brutally hot summers, and I never had a problem with slugs. So, 
you know, if you've got a small garden, you've got the time to get out there and look at those tomato plants and look at those beans and, and, and see how they're doing. And, 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 and sure enough, if, if, you know, some of the leaves are turning yellow, do a little research. Do, do, I, need to, uh, do I need to water them more? Am I watering them too much? Or, or maybe am I not giving them enough uh, nitrogen? Maybe I should be getting a little more of those grass clippings from the neighbor that I see them putting out in, in the garbage every week. So, so the, if anything, the smaller the garden to start, the better. Because, because the other thing I find is, is a lot of people bite, bite off way more than they can chew. And they get out there and they, get, they rent a rototiller and they make this humongous garden the first, you know, the first year that, they, that they're into it. And they, they, they get it in. There's huge enthusiasm in the spring. And then all summer they realize, holy crap, i got to keep weeding these things. i got to keep watering. And then by the fall they say, I'm never going to grow any food again, which is too much darn work. There's some other things you were talking about there with protein. Um, and then to me this is a big part where small livestock or even harvestable uh, local wildlife come in to the play. The reality is if you look at a big field of, of grass and mixed herbs and things like that, typical pasture land, there's a tremendous amount of protein there. And there's a, a huge amount of potential protein there. But human beings, we just have not evolved to eat, you know, pasture and convert it to protein. But things like rabbits and goats and cattle and, and all types of creatures are really good at converting that biomass into high-quality protein. And we can bring things in, and we don't even have to necessarily be harvesting the wildlife itself. Like you said, chickens, chickens, turkeys, ducks, a lot, especially like the, uh, the khaki what they call them, macaque something. They're like a mallard cross with some kind of domestic duck. Really good in land situations. They'll convert that biomass to protein in the form of eggs. So by bringing in some stuff that we'll harvest, like let's say, I'm looking at just by the way, like 17 morning doves probably and about half a dozen squirrels sitting in my backyard on my feeders right now. In a hard time, they, they could all be potential protein. Uh, but we could also be raising rabbits or, or killing some of our chickens and ducks, the surplus, that takes that one resource that's good to look at, but we can't do a lot with it, and it makes it something we can eat, right? Uh, I, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, a, a lot of cities now are, are aware of the fact that the, that people are thinking these terms. And it used to be, you know, most cities and suburbs would make it illegal to have chickens, but a lot of big cities now are, are making it legal that you know to have you know three or four chickens in your backyard. And, uh, you know, we don't have any right now, but uh, they, they seem to have great personalities. People really, really uh, enjoy having them around. Uh, everybody who eats fresh, fresh eggs raves about them, and they can't believe how much uh, better they are than the kind you get in the stores. And they're certainly much safer, I mean, in terms of you knowing that, uh, uh, you know, problems that you might have with salmonella and stuff. But I just think any time you, you have, have contact like that with, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with animals and nature and you produce your own food, I think it just gives you a, a huge appreciation. And, you know, I, I, I grow a lot of my own food. I don't grow at all. And I, I, I still, you know, I still spoil myself. I, I eat the odd pineapple. I eat the odd banana. They've come a long way. They have a high carbon footprint. A lot of energy has is, is gone into to getting them to my place. But, you know, I sit down and I, I marvel at the fact that I can buy a pineapple where I am and the, 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 the grocery store is about to 10 miles from me. And, uh, you know, in the middle of winter, I can buy a pineapple for, for 3 bucks. And I think I, I, I think it's a miracle. And, and, it, and the one thing I've learned in all the research I've done, I also realize it's a, it's a real privilege. It's a real right. We, a lot of people assume it's a right to have this uh, a, a multitude of food available to them 12 months of the year. And it's, and it's not. It's a privilege. And by growing your own food and getting a handle on where it comes from and how much energy has gone into growing it, I think you, I think you actually start enjoying the food that you eat more. And I think that that's really important because, 
as people learn about peak oil and, and a lot of these issues, it, it can be depressing and it can be overwhelming. But I honestly think, and, and it's one of the things that I, I stressed in my book, Thriving During Challenging Times, I think that it's a real opportunity for people to do things that they actually enjoy that, that make them happy. Rather than sitting in some, you know, geofattening pen and, and on a telephone pushing pixels around a, a computer screen all day, getting out in your garden and growing your own food and bringing it in and putting it on your table and, and eating something you've grown just gives you a tremendous feeling of accomplishment. It's, just, it's a wonderful experience. And so uh, I, I, I think that when, when people come to my workshops and stuff, they, I think they assume that I'm going to sort of walk around with a dark cloud over my head, but it's just not the case. I, I love my wind turbine and I love my garden <laughs> and, and I, I love Sunday morning when I'm having a, a, a big plate of, of hash browns and onions from my garden and, and locally, grown, uh, locally grown eggs. It's a good thing. You know, and what you talked about there with, the, like, you know, eating some pineapples or bananas or things like that, the, the, the thing with that is, first of all, you're only going to eat so many pineapples and bananas, or you're going to spend more time in the bathroom than in the backyard. So that it's self-limiting. But I guess the other thing is, it, that's the stuff to me that it makes sense for me to eat from, you know, a tropical climate. Now, buying my corn from a tropical climate doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I can grow all the corn I want right here. So if we were only importing or only importing in significant quantities the things we can't produce for ourselves, uh, then we would tend to be exporting the things that we can produce in surplus. And it seems, seems to me we'd have much more balanced trade. And there's nothing wrong with eating a pineapple uh, that was grown in, in the Pacific Islands. That's a commodity that those people are able to sell and earn a living with. And there's nothing wrong with selling them things that don't grow good on a sandy island like a, a good old ear of corn. But to me, the problem is that most of us are now eating more than half of our foods coming from Argentina, Australia, and no harm, no foul. I don't hate Australians or Argentinians. I love them both. They're great people. But we become dependent instead of trade partners. Yep. And, yeah, and I think... Yeah, and I think that one of the one of the things that uh, that doing you know knowing where your food comes from and, and sourcing it and growing it yourself and knowing how much effort went into growing it, I think it gives you a, a much better appreciation for for the people who I think are the most people important people in our society, and that's farmers. You know, I, I think you I think that people living in an urban environment, I think they're in a lot of cases there's sort of a there's a there's a blue state and a red state mentality, and uh, you know, and, and I think these things are I think these things are wrong because what you realize is that you know, we're all dependent on other people, and, and increasingly we're dependent on these farmers on tractors feeding more and more people every year. So, so you need to you need to realize there's only so much they can do, and as the price of energy goes up, what they produce is going to be much more expensive. So, how much you can take out of your backyard is is going to become really important. I also think we would actually pay our farmers more per labor unit. If we grew more of our own food, which most people think is completely wrong, but I think it's 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 completely right. What I mean by that is, let's say I'm growing 50% of my food that I that I have to have, or 50% of the food that I eat in my backyard, um, and, and and but that gives me you know honestly 60 or 70% of the food that I need to subsist and need to survive. That means I only have to go out on the market and buy 30 or 40% of the food to to make it to make myself alive, right? Any additional food that I buy, now I'm buying a pineapple because I like sweetness and I like that pineapple that I can't. So I'm buying kind of a, a, a luxury, right? So do people pay more money per unit for things they have to have, or do people pay more money per unit for luxuries? And the, the obvious answer is, is a luxury. So if we take some portion of our food and stop looking at it as i got to eat tonight or I'm going to die, 
and start saying, oh, I can feed myself in the backyard, but I want this pineapple or I want this papaya or I want this cup of coffee grown in Sumatra. People are actually going to be willing to pay more for the reduced quantity, if this makes sense, the reduced quantity they actually buy, which means everybody in that labor chain is able to make more per unit, and it's actually better for our farmers if we buy less from them. I know that sounds retarded, but, I mean, to me it's completely, it makes complete financial sense. Yep, yep, no, no, no question about it. I, I also, uh, you know, I also think that uh, one of the nice things about about starting to grow food now on a small scale is, is it gets you in touch with, uh, with challenges that you're going to have uh, in the future, uh, such as water. You know, so much of, yeah. so much of the world, in, including the, you know, the southern U.S., has challenges with water. So, uh, you know, it, it, you get that little garden in and, you know, you realize that, uh, that your local municipality is telling you to use less water. So now you're going to go out and you're going to put rain barrels on every downspout. And when you do get a rain, you're going to save as much of that water as you can. If you're in a rural environment uh, and you've got a pump, you're going to realize that every time that pump comes on to, to pump water out of your well, it uses electricity. So you're going to make sure that you use the water very efficiently. And and I'm I have a really sandy soil and I'm in a in a very drought prone area. So I I find that uh, the, one of my biggest challenges with growing well is water. So what what I have done is number one I have a, a dug well which is a which is a well that the, the previous farmer uh, you know 75 years ago dug down near where my garden is, uh, and I used to, when I started, I'd, I'd just throw a bucket down and, and pull it up and, and take it over to where I wanted to, 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 to water it, but now that I'm 50, that's too much work, so I've got a, a solar panel and a little DC pump that I just bought at a, an auto supply place uh, and a, with, a, with a pipe that goes down into the well with a foot valve in it to keep it from plugging up, and I use that to pull the water out of the well and move it out into the garden, some of which I put in rain barrels nice thing about that is, is I put it in a rain barrel one day, I let it warm up so that when I use it the next day, it's, it's going to shock the plants a little less. And I'm also now using a drip irrigation system. So what I've, what I've purchased is, uh, is a series of, of, of piping that has, uh, you know, small holes drilled basically every 12 inches. And when the water is being pushed through there, it just drips out of those holes. And it's, it's, it's way, way more efficient than using a sprinkler. When you use a sprinkler, a huge percentage of the water vaporizes, and a lot of it ends up where you don't want it, and, it, and then all it does is ends up between the rows and it inspires weeds to grow. When you use drip irrigation, you put it right to where you want it, right to the plant, and, uh, and what happens is, is that little dripping water sort of looks like if you, if you had a towel and you, and you dip the corner of a towel in, in water, uh, a big fluffy towel, if you kept doing that and, and dipping it in for a second, eventually you know that towel is going to suck that water all the way up into the towel. And that's what your ground is going to do. It's, it's sort of going to whip that water and move it to where you want it to go. And it's not going to waste it because it's all going directly to the plant rather than into the air. So, you know, I've sort of invested, you know, 50 bucks a year for the last few years and, and increased the amount of uh, uh, piping that I have for my, uh, for my drip irrigation. And now when I do have those drought periods, uh, I, I, I've got a way to, to keep things watered. And you can, and you can do this on, on a small scale as well. It's not something you have to do if you have a huge commercial garden. You can do it on a much smaller scale. So this is the nice thing about getting a little garden in and getting it, as you say, getting it going and finding out what the challenges are that are unique to your area so that you can make your mistakes now so that when it's necessary, you know, when, when you're, when your kids move back home because, uh, you know, they've lost their job and now you're, feeding a few more people and, and you want to start offsetting some of those food costs, you've now got the skills to do it. Very cool. 
Also, um, I wanted to drop this on you and see what your thoughts are. You may or may not have heard this before. One of my idols uh, out there is Bill Mollison, one of the founders of Permaculture. And I was listening to one of his lectures, and he said something about water conservation that, that changed forever the way I look at a forest. He said our forests are actually lakes. And he said it's a combination of the shade that prevents evaporation, the massive amount of organic matter that falls on our forest floors and goes into a moist, slow breakdown process with the fungi, and all the moisture that's retained by that soil. Even though the trees are pumping massive amounts of water, there's still a lot of surface water there. And if you took a forest and you spread it out over a thousand or a million acres, there's in the first 12 inches of soil, there's about an inch of water. And that's a one-inch-deep, million-acre lake. And that we can take and we can recreate those conditions on a quarter of an acre in a little patch of, you know, shrubs and brushes and vines and trees, like apple trees, blueberry bushes, uh, climbing vines, things like that, in our backyards. We can't do as good as nature in that small climate because any kind of ecosystem, the smaller you go, the less stable it is. But we can recreate that and that we can conserve water without actually – um, doing it the way that normal, normally people think of it. When I looked at that, I was like, I mean, you would never even think of it in that fashion. So now we take your drip irrigation water catchment system and we put it into something like that. We get something that we have a reserve of water. We don't even see it as water. We see it as soil, but the water's there. Yes, and I, uh, and what you're talking about as well is something that I, that I try and emulate in my gardens, uh, which is using mulch. Absolutely. Is, uh, you know, put, putting putting something on to, to to maintain the water that's already there. And you know, I'm I'm fortunate because I live in a rural area and I I purchase uh, you know uh, scrap uh, round bales from farmers uh, hay that's no longer suitable to feed livestock. But uh, I'll go back to those leaves that you're scrounging from your neighbor in the city. They make a fabulous mulch. You know, get them under your tomato plants. Get them under everything, uh, and they're going to do two things. Number one, they're going to keep the weeds down, and they're going to keep the water in. And they're also going to start breaking down and adding the the the, the nutrients and the and the you know the uh, the, the humus that you need that, uh, that that's going to in, improve the soil because you know earthworms are going to crawl up into those leaves and they're going to munch on some and pull some down into the soil and that's going to create air holes in your in your in your garden and that's what your roots like and that's when you have a rain what the water wants to flow through so uh, so the more of that organic matter you can get into your garden the better. Awesome. Anything that you can get the tree, I, I, I think, is really important. Yeah, my one neighbor's actually got this thing. Looks like a leaf blower, but it works like a vacuum. And he put a standard garbage bag on the back side of it, and it sucks up the leaves, shreds them, and compacts them into the bag. And he wow. was out last year. Our, believe it or not, our leaves are still just beginning to fall from our trees down here. It's been such a warm year, but last <laughs> year, I mean, he ended up with his whole yard into about four bags, and I wondered how that could happen. And when I picked one bag up and it near ripped my back out, I realized how much was actually packed in there. But I took those four bags of uh, leaves, and when I put them into a pile and they popped back out, I had this massive – and so I don't remember who makes this thing, but i got to find out because uh, I think for a suburban person, it's a, it's a great tool. I think neighbors could go in on one – I mean, how often do you need it? It's not something you need every day. So a couple of neighbors could go in on one together. But you're right. The more you can get for free. And the more you can do nature's job of breaking it down before you put it into the compost heap – the quicker the results you're going to get. Um, yeah, I, I like that idea. We've been talking a lot about food now. We've been talking about water. We're talking about shelter, energy. Let's talk about surplus food. So I go out, and I, I can tell you from, from my personal experience, my garden's much smaller than yours just because of spatial requirements. But um, 
I produce way more food, not that I can eat in a year, but that I could eat in a growing season. Um, right. We had our first frost the day of Thanksgiving, so I had to go out and pull all my sweet peppers, all my chili peppers, all my jalapenos, uh, all of my peppers. I got about 50 pounds of peppers in one day. And I know what I did with it, but uh, it, not everybody's going to have peppers in surplus. You talk a lot about preserving your own food through some different methods in your book. Can you go through some of those, the advantages and disadvantages of each? Sure. Um, uh, you know, peppers and tomatoes and things like that, they, they obviously they can very well. And uh, if, if you're going to can, I suggest you, uh, you, you find somebody who knows how to do it well and because it can be dangerous if you don't do it well, not as dangerous with things like tomatoes that are very acidic, but things like beans and stuff. If you don't do it properly, you can you can end up with botulism, and that can be dangerous. Um, the other thing I'm always thinking about with canning is the fact that I, I always look at the energy that's required to do it. And at this stage of the game, I think canning skills are good skills to have, but if you look at the, 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 the cost of energy versus what it costs to, to go out and buy a, a can of tomatoes, I think we're at a stage where uh, we have this uh, amazing economic system that still provides uh, an abundant amount of food very cheap. So, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in Thriving During Challenging Times is to have a pantry. And anytime you know, canned tomatoes are on sale, stock up and, 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 and fill up your, your pantry. So I think it's very, very important to have, have the skill of, of how to can, but, but right now I tend to look at things uh, more uh, such as freezing. And with, with a lot of our tomatoes, what we do is, is uh, uh, Michelle blanches them, just throws them into hot water quickly, takes the skins off, uh, throws them into to plastic bags, and then we freeze them. And then what we do during the winter is, is just pull out a bag, put it on the wood stove, throw in some garlic and, and frozen basil, and, you know, you've got soup by lunchtime. So freezing, uh, freezing from an off-grid standpoint, a lot of people wouldn't think that you could have the electricity to do it, but uh, we continue to invest in more solar panels. We've upgraded our battery banks. And we have a farmhouse that was built in 1888, so the basement isn't heated. So the basement stays quite cool, and that's where our freezer is. So it doesn't have to work as hard. And uh, you I correct me if I'm wrong, too, Cam. I think that chest freezers, um, especially a good-sized chest freezer, well-stocked, not half-empty, in a cool environment, is far more energy-efficient than a standard refrigerator is. Yes, most definitely. That, and that's certainly what we discovered when we when we bought our freezer. And, you know, we were always frustrated uh, when we had such an abundance, as you say, of, of food, and we didn't have, and, and, you know, we didn't, we did we were too busy with publishing books or whatever. We didn't have the time to can it. It's, it's way easier to freeze a lot of times to just throw stuff in bags and pull it out when you want it. And I guess the other thing is, is when you do things like canning beans or something a few times, you realize that, man, you've got to cook those jars a long time, and, and you seem to cook a lot of nutrition out of them. Where I find with freezing, you can do it quickly and, and get them in there quickly. I think you actually end up preserving, preserving a lot more of the, the nutrients. So I completely uh, agree. Definitely chest freezer. Chest freezer is a great idea. And, you know, remember, if you've got a, a, a big chest freezer somewhere and you have a power outage, you know, just make sure you find some big quilts and you, you throw them over that freezer and keep it closed. Don't be, don't be opening it during a power outage. You, you know, the, the, the longer it stays closed and, and covered, the, the longer it's going to keep your stuff cold. So, uh, uh, you know, that, that's one thing to think about with a freezer. That, that, that's, not, that's not something you have to think about with, uh, with, a, with a root cellar. It, it doesn't require the power. I do talk a bit about things like dehydration and, uh, you know, using sun drying and, and some of those things, maybe making fruit leathers. That's a, a good way to, to preserve some of that harvest. Or, and pickling is a good thing. You know, and pickling is, is great with a lot of things and, again, doesn't require as much energy. And jams and jellies. 
same idea if you if you've got to, you know your strawberries and raspberries and things that you're growing in the garden. I think really that the key to any uh, any successful garden is going to be a, a good root cellar, and uh, it's it's tough to think of with a, with a lot of uh, suburban homes, for instance. People think of it as a country thing, but maybe in a, in a in a suburban house, you think you need to think of it more as a cold storage, and you need to think of taking an area of your basement that that that, that right now is already cool and making sure it's uh, it's uh, you know turning it into a turning it into a root cellar. If you can, you'd, you'd want to put it say on the northwest corner. Uh, if there is a if if it's below grade, but there's a window in it, that's nice because then you can uh, use that window to. Uh, build yourself a, a couple of vents. One that will allow, a, uh, you know, fresh air to come in and drop down onto the floor of the of the root cellar, and then one that can vent it out the top. Because having air circulation is important because you want to make sure that uh, uh, that some of the gases, that some of the vegetables, as they're you know as they're as they're uh, gradually breaking down over the winter, things like apples and stuff let off a, a gas that will make your carrots, uh, you know, ripen prematurely. So. You want to have air circulation in there. So uh, take an area of, of the basement, uh, insulate it well, uh, and make sure that there's no heating vents in it. And uh, the optimal conditions for a root cellar are uh, about 40 degrees Fahrenheit and, and 90 degrees uh, or 90% humidity. And that's certainly something you don't want in most of your house. That's going to cause a problem. It's one of the things you should think about with your insulation on that cold storage when you make it. You're, you're much better to go with, say, a rigid foam insulation than the, the, the typical fiberglass because that's more likely to have mold and, and issues like that. But uh, the, the temperature you want to aim for in that root cellar is about 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 5 degrees Celsius and, and 90% humidity. Uh, because a vegetable really is very is, is a, a large part of that vegetable is is water, and the, the more humid it is, the the, the longer it's going to get preserved. So uh, you know, in the fall, as we're harvesting the garden, uh, our, I'm putting potatoes into into buckets. I throw in either sawdust or peat moss or dry sand, and I put a whack of them into the root cellar. Uh, my my carrots, I put into into wet sawdust. Uh, they prefer to be a, a, a little damp in in, in storage. I bought a bunch of uh, of wire mesh buckets, like trash can, like little trash cans that you have in an office, uh, and that's what I put my onions in, and I hang those up so they're they're a little bit off the ground. Uh, I've got some metal shelving in there that I put all my squash on, and uh, uh, you know, uh, even some of the watermelons and things like that 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 are late. I might get to, you know three or four weeks out of before uh, before they go on me. So. Some of the stuff like squash isn't going to isn't going to last you all winter, but it's some it, it's the sort of stuff that uh, uh, it allows you to sort of extend the season and, and be making uh, squash soup and, and some of those things uh, into into even January and February before those uh, those things start to go. And again, this is this is where this is where your 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 practicing is going to help. You know, there's been years that I have just grown so many squash and I've I've just loaded up that root cellar with so many of these darn things, and by March I had this big you know, big whack of moldy squash that, that that are furry, and I don't even remember what they are because uh, I don't I, I don't eat enough of it. So you, you sort of get us to a stage where you know how much you're realistically realistically going to eat, and therefore how much of your root cellar should be devoted to the to the specific things that you're growing. But on, the, on the root cellar type of on the root cellar type of storage, help out to people down here where I'm at. Our houses down here in Texas, especially this part of Texas, are not built with basements, and they never will be. Because if you dig more than you know three inches past the little layer of topsoil they put, put the grass in when they put a house in here, you'll find this real dark black soil, which normally you think of as good until you dig it up here, and it's what they call gumbo clay. 
And basically, they build houses on slab foundations here so that they'll float because that clay, when it rains, expands, and when it gets dry, it contracts, and it will literally crumble a house to the ground if you try to put a basement underneath it. So we ain't got any basements. It's not really a good place to dig something large and put a basement in. Any ideas for somebody in this environment that we can do for some level of similar type of storage? Um, yeah, that, that that that's a tough one, Jack. I, I'd, I'd have to do more research on that. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I did a, a, a presentation for the you know the local gardening group here near the in the village where near near where I live, and and you know it's quite amazing when you do some research on the internet the the variety of, of, of root cellars that are out there and, and some of the designs that that that, that, that are there. Uh, you know, I, I know I saw one that was uh, uh, in California, and uh, I think it was probably I, I had seen it in a Mother Earth news, and it was it was very cool because they had uh, they had done this lovely job of of building soil up, uh, and and uh, and uh, they had a fairly large door in it, and uh, had had landscaped it nicely. So they, uh, you know, it was you could say well that it was just a little hill they put in their backyard. Uh, but they they got enough soil in it that uh, that it was able to to keep things cool in it. Very cool. Now it it, it 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 may not last as well as something in a in a cooler climate like I'm in, but uh, certainly it's it, it's going to extend the season. But you you have a much longer growing season. Than exactly. I well, that, right? that was what I was going to get at. There's a trade off. If I can yeah. if, if I can get my storage for me to go three four months, that is like you getting six. Because I've got, you know, like I said, I'm sure you had to pull your peppers before Thanksgiving. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I can, I, you know, I don't, I don't need as long of storage. And then to me, if you get other storage methods going on, like you mentioned, drying and dehydration, um, that's what we did with our peppers primarily, um, and we were able to take, you know, a the, the cloth shopping bags they have, the ones that you reuse, one of those completely full of bell peppers. When fully chopped up and dehydrated, fit into uh, to three one pint uh, paint cans, and I buy these paint cans with the FDA approved gold lining, so they're food grade. Three of those from you know a, t- a twenty pound bag full of uh, sweet peppers, and they're not you're not going to eat salad with that. I mean you know let's be honest, and they're not going to make a real good side dish like fried peppers or something. But for soups, for stews, uh, for chilies, for anything like that, they're outstanding. So if you can you know, trade off certain things based on where you're at, I think is the best thing to do. I've also seen things where people build like a mini root cellar where they basically, you know, dig a four foot by four foot by four foot cube out of the ground and and, and kind of do the, the cover over and lower things down. I've never tried it, so I can't vouch for how well it works, but I have to believe there would be some reasonable effect uh, from anything subterranean. And Remember, folks, when you do a root cellar, if it's a perfect environment, you're going to have a dirt floor, right, Cam? Not a not a nice, pretty concrete, you know, slab down there. Right, and and and, and one of the nice things about a dirt floor is the fact that it's going to uh, it's going to actually serve as a, as a way to regulate the the humidity in the air. Uh, and if you had a particularly dry period, you could just go down and dump a dump a bucket of water on your on your on your dirt floor or even a gravel floor, and then it would release that that humidity gradually. So that's a great idea. I think I think one of the other things you touch on as well is in in warmer climates, you you can probably be more aggressive in in the, 
and sort of using a, uh, a system of planting where you don't plant everything all at once, you, 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 you stagger it. And so, uh, you know, you get some potatoes in and get some of everything in as early as you can, which obviously for you is going to be much earlier, but then you keep, you know, planting every, every, two, th- every two or three weeks during the season. And what you're going to learn is, as you're experimenting is, is that, you know, oh, look, I, I know I can still get some potatoes in in August, uh, and and those are the ones that I'm going to be able to to, to harvest in uh, you know in November in in, the, in my growing area based on you know how much uh, how you know how it, and and the nice thing about potatoes is they're growing below ground so I mean they're still going to survive a frost down there without taking too much damage so Absolutely. the more you you get into um, you know learning how to sort of uh, stagger your plantings and do multiple plantings uh, you're you're going to find that that's going to allow you to extend the season. And, uh, and you're going to get stuff in early and get stuff in late and, and maximize the amount of time that you can be feeding yourself directly right out of the garden. I think you're dead on. I mean, we have like we have like a big line here that we cross over, and it's usually right around the time of the first frost. A month or two before that, I'm starting to do things like start broccoli and kale and lettuce and spinach and all the stuff that you can probably grow through most of your growing season. But if I put it in the ground here, it's either going to die or bolt and go to seed in like 15 days. Um, and that's the time of the year that I can plant that stuff. So all of a sudden we go from tomatoes and peppers and, you know, summer squash and things like that and sweet potato. We make this, this cross to where most of what we're eating from the garden that's fresh is, is salad greens, uh, onions and garlic and things like that as well. Um, and, and we just change our diet as the season changes. I'm going to be more likely to sit down to a huge bowl of uh, baby kale and arugula and spinach with maybe one store-bought pepper chopped up in it in in December here, uh, and maybe have broccoli with dinner than I am in in August when I'm going to be eating peppers and tomatoes and squash. And it's it's just about living, you know, wherever you live, you kind of adapt to that. But like you've been saying, until people start to do it, you're not going to figure any of it out. And just because you see your neighbor doing something doesn't mean when times get tough, you'll just be able to flip the switch and start doing what he's doing because that guy might have ten or like you fourteen years of soil building, and if somebody moved out to your farm area tomorrow and started trying to grow in that sandy soil with no organic improvements, they're not going to get the results that you have. Yep, and, and every year you're going to, hopefully, I think what you'll find is you want to experiment. And, and what we're what I'm increasingly doing is, is growing more warm season crops. Like uh, one year I had good luck with, uh, with, with peanuts. Again, another way to, to grow some protein in your backyard. And I did mulch them. I used a, a black plastic mulch to really sort of accelerate the amount of heat that they got. And we're getting much better at growing sweet potatoes up here. Uh, you get some varieties that can handle the, the, the cooler, uh, the cooler growing season. And, uh, I mean, sweet potatoes are just an absolute nutritional powerhouse. So good for you. And you always think of these things as something that grows in the tropics. But, uh, you know, the last few years we've been growing them, and um, they're, they're great. I was never a big sweet potato fan until I started growing my own and realized that the kind you get from the store, basically, you know, to cure a sweet potato, you need to, you need to keep it warm, whereas it arrives at your grocery store in a refrigerated truck. So it's no wonder it doesn't taste as good as it could if you pulled it out of your own, your own garden. Absolutely, absolutely. So as we go to wrap up here, you've got quite a few books out. You want to maybe tell folks about some of the things that they, they can get that, that will help them do these stuff from you and, you know, your website. And you're even doing some workshops at your farm now, aren't you? Retreat or something yep. like that, I read? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we always, when I did workshops down at to community colleges and stuff, we, we, I would usually have people come up because uh, in, in the fall because so many people here, you hear 
oh, somebody lives off the grid, they sort of assume you've got an outhouse and you've got dirt floors. So, you know, I invite <laughs> people up to come and flush my toilet and watch my, uh, you know, my satellite television and, 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 and see that, uh, no, you can, you can do this and you can live a, a, a typical North American lifestyle with renewable energy because uh, the technology allows you to do it. Um, so the, the Renewable Energy Handbook that we published by William Kemp really, I think, it, it takes you through the full gamut of, of how to make your house more efficient and then how to look at all the different bits and pieces that you require with, with ideas to, to, to making it upgradable. Uh, the, the book that I wrote, Thriving During Challenging Times, subtitle is The Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook. And I just sort of I look at the big pictures of the economic collapse and, and, and climate change and, uh, uh, and, and what's going on with peak oil and say the future is going to look much different than the present. You need to make yourself more resilient to shocks, and, and I take people through step-by-step step on how to do that. And, uh, and the All-You-Can-Eat Gardening Handbook is, uh, is just where I share my 35 years of gardening experience. <laughs> gardening, it, it's easy, but uh, I've, I've just got some, some pointers that I've learned in, in my years that I, that I share with people that, that I hope makes their, uh, their journey to, uh, to improving their gardening skills a little easier. You can get all our books at uh, our website, which is uh, aztex.com, A-Z-T, ext.com uh, or my website canmather.com and uh, and and there are, and you know I, I certainly encourage you to, to, to get them from your local bookstore they can order them and uh, I, I think that one of the things that I really like about uh, about my local community and one of the things that I've found about living in a small town is, is that uh, is that I know everybody I know all the merchants in town and uh, and I think that you know, one of the one of the greatest ways you can prepare yourself for an uncertain future uh, is to is to start building up a, a network of of people that have skills and and know as many people in your community as you can. And it's harder to do in the suburbs or the city, but you know, if you, if you go into your your local video store and your local grocery store, you need to get to know people. And and I talk about if you can't grow your own food, join a CSA, a community supported agriculture. Absolutely. Some of the farmers that supply food. We'll invite you out to, to, to work on the weekends. So you may be in the city, you know, get out, get out in the farm on the weekends and, and, and learn how to pull weeds and, and how, to, how to store carrots and stuff. So those things you can do as well. And one of the things you had, you had mentioned to me um, uh, earlier was just in terms of, you know, I'm off-grid and uh, I have, you know, had communication has been my biggest challenge uh, and there, there wasn't any cell service here when we moved in, but we have it now. Our, our, our internet, we use high-speed uh, uh, internet from a satellite, and, uh, and that's, uh, it's more expensive that you could, than you would get in the city. But the first thing to investigate is, is whether there's, there's wireless high-speed in your area because, uh, because a lot of local governments are, are spending more and more money on, on bringing wireless high-speed to rural environments. So uh, that should be your first step. Find out if you can get that. And then you need to start looking at, uh, at uh, you know, what sort of speed you can get out of a phone line if you have a landline. And then, uh, your, your, you know, your last resort would be, a, would be high-speed Internet through a satellite. More expensive, but uh, it, it's just amazing how your life can change when uh, you're in a rural environment and you've been using dial-up and suddenly you can do everything online and, uh, uh, with high-speed in a satellite. It's, it, it's, it's really changed our life and, and made living off-grid in a rural environment much, much more, uh, uh, you know, contemporary. You're, you're, you're plugged into the matrix even though you're, you're, you're not. And it's, it's very cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what we've been looking at. The, uh, you know, I'm with you on the wireless stuff, and I think there's a technology called WiMAX that eventually is going to solve all these problems. It's not really rolled out yet. Motorola has a, has a product called Canopy that they're trying to push into a lot of these rural environments, which I think 
people should look at, but it's not there yet. And then there's places like where I'm going off grid. It's not nice and flat. It's the, the terrain is very mountainous and, you know, there's only 12 people that live up in our set of the hills and, you know, getting a signal back in there, even with WiMAX is difficult. So I'm going to be stuck with satellite. So uh, in your experience, I, I'm fine with painting because I need the connection as part of my business. Is it, is it is it a good level of service? I guess is my concern. And if you don't mind, can you say who you use for this? Well, I use a, a company called ExploreNet, and I think they use uh, Hughes satellites out okay. of uh, out of the U.S. I think, quite honestly, the one thing that uh, people need to understand with uh, with with satellite uh, internet is the fact that you're going to have latency, and that's going to cause a problem when you want to use uh, voice over IP. And, or telephony is it sometime called. So something like Skype. Skype won't really work well with satellite with the current technology because, you know, your, your voice is going to go, you know, 25,000 miles into space onto a satellite and then be, uh, you know, echoed back down 25,000 miles back down to Earth. So when you talk to somebody uh, using Skype with uh, high-speed uh, satellite Internet, you're going to find there's a delay there, which is very distracting. And uh, I continue to talk to my satellite company, and I know they're working on it, but there still are some physical limitations because sure. of this, that, that, that's, that's going. The, so, speed uh, of light is, the speed of light is the speed of light, and you can't, you, you can't go faster than that. And that's what you're talking with a radio satellite frequency wave there. It's really a light wave. And yep. it's not going to – the only way to make it go faster is to make the satellite lower, and, and that has its limitations too. Um, delay – more than two seconds is generally intolerable, and you get around four to six seconds with satellite comms, so it's almost like being on a radio. When we did it in the military, the only way to have that conversation through sat relays was, you know, hey, Cam, how you doing? This is Jack. Over. And you had to be like you were on a radio and, and, and give the definitive end of your statement. Otherwise, if I pause for like half a second, you start talking, then the other half of my communication comes over, and now we're both, and then I'm going, no, I'm still talking, and it's, it's dead. So, yeah, what about, uh, I mean, my big concern is trying to upload a 20-megabyte uh, podcast for these folks every day and figuring I'm going to have to run down to town and hit the Starbucks Wi-Fi to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's not, that won't be a problem with satellite. You know, okay. we, I think we cost us 100 bucks a month, and we get 350 megabytes of data up or down. And, uh, and so, you know, they have different packages, et cetera. So, no, that, that, I, that won't be a problem. And I think, quite honestly, I think this, this, uh, this latency problem will be dealt with. I mean, you can, you can talk to somebody in, on the other side of, a, of the world on a, on, a, on, a, uh, on a phone with cables going under the ocean. So, I mean, they, they have learned how to do it with, uh, you know, with echoing and delaying, and, and they have a number of techniques that they've used, you know, for a long time with traditional phones. And, and I think it will come on, on satellite. But that, that's one... That's one limitation we have right now. You know, my daughters live uh, four hours away. You know, we, 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 once in a while we'll connect to them with Skype, which is nice because we can see their picture, but after about five minutes we get tired of talking mm -hmm. and then waiting, you know, because of the delay. So it, it's been fun, but, you know, we're not going to talk all afternoon. Sure, sure. Very cool. Well, hey, Cam, um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make sure that everybody can find your books, your websites, uh, things like that. They'll all be in today's show notes. Uh, for people, so all they have to do is go to survivalpodcast.com, look up this episode. If you're listening to it six months from the time we recorded it, it's still there. Uh, just search for uh, episode five, or five, 566 in the, uh, in the search box, and you'll be able to find this, like, light speed, honestly. Uh, and uh, is there anything else maybe you want to leave people with final thoughts or things like that? 
No, I, I, I appreciate you having having me on, Jack. I'm, I'm glad there's somebody out there doing what you're doing. I think that uh, the more people that have these skills, uh, the more and, and are, are mentally prepared for this, the more resilient we are going to be as a society. And I think there's going to be a lot of people very dazed and confused when when uh, things start happening. And I think that uh, uh, lots of us still have jobs and lots of us still have an income, and we have an opportunity now to to make ourselves more resilient to those shocks. And I, I think I can't urge people enough to to, to get cracking to, to to start investing in some of this stuff. And let me hear as we wrap up here at the end. So I'll offer a personal endorsement for Cam's book. I've got. Uh, all, all of his books, and um, I think they belong on your bookshelf too. I mean, you guys know I don't recommend a book unless it's on my bookshelf. If I don't think of enough of it to keep it there, and it, it's got to be more next. If somebody just sends, and I get books sent to me all the time. Somebody sends me one, and when I finally get around to reading it, it doesn't ma- it mean muster. I, I still don't recommend it. Um, most books about these subjects, alternative energy and growing your own food and self sufficiency, spend 80% of their, their, their text explaining to you why you should do it and 20% explaining to you how to do it. My experience with Cam stuff is it gives you 80% of how and 20% of why, which to me is a hell of a lot more important because I want to know what to do, how to do it, and how to get it done and how to make it work. So, uh, that's a personal endorsement for all of Cam's books. Again, I'll put links in the show notes. Uh, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today here with Cam Mather, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. On our TVs, sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.